Well, our text for this morning uh, is taken from Psalm 127. As you are able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? A song of ascents of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Do you ever find it strange or weird that God has to command us, his people, to rest? Or you remember in the, in the fourth commandment, the Lord says, Remember the Sabbath day, the day of rest, to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. Now, I will confess, I, I understand and appreciate why God has given us the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. And I understand and appreciate why God has given us the seventh commandment, you shall not steal. I can even understand and appreciate why God gave us the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. But this command to rest, if I'm honest, is, is strange. Do we really need to be reminded even told to rest amid the busyness of our lives, amid the exhaustion that we feel because of those six days of labor, don't you think that we would be looking for a break? Don't you think we would be longing for a day of rest? And yet, God still commands it. Remember the day of rest. What is perhaps even stranger than this command itself is that among the chief reasons that God gives to his people Israel in the Old Testament for their exile from the promised land is their refusal to rest. In Leviticus 26, as God is speaking prophetically to his people about the consequences of their sin in the future, he says, I will scatter you among the nations and I will unsheath the sword after you. And your land shall be a desolation, and your cities shall be a waste. Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths, as long as it lies desolate. While you are in your enemy's land, then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. Israel's refusal to rest in God brought about God's action to bring rest to his land by sending his rebellious people into exile for failing to rest. You see, God's command to rest is far deeper than telling us to take a break or telling us to go on vacation. Sabbath, as we read in Genesis 1, echoed in Exodus 20, is woven into the very fabric of creation by God himself. God tells us he created the world in six days and then rested on the seventh day, making it holy. 
And later in Deuteronomy 5, God tells us the Sabbath is also a great reminder to us that it was given to us to remind Israel that God had rescued them from slavery to Egypt and slavery to Egypt's God. The Sabbath is how God weaves the gospel of our salvation into our schedules. It is how God invites us to participate in his rest, not just on Sundays, but in our entire lives. Jesus even says that the man was not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. Sabbath rest is a gift of God to us. And yet, as we look at Psalm 127, we often find ourselves very much like those in verse 2. Those who rise up early to work, those who go to bed late, those who eat the bread of anxious toil. We seem to always be enslaved by our schedules, driven by our ambition, and controlled by our worries. And yet it is to these people, to you and to me, those who are stressed out and those who are overscheduled, that Psalm 127 makes a startling claim. At the end of verse 2, it simply says, God gives to his beloved sleep, rest. But then there's that burning question, because we, we can acknowledge this with our heads, but we want to experience it in our lives. How do we enter into the rest that God has for us? And this is the question that Psalm 127 seeks to answer for us. Psalm 127 is written by King Solomon. It says it right there at the top, of Solomon. He was the king of Israel. He was the builder of God's temple. He's the wisest man on earth apart from our Lord. The author of most of the wisdom literature in the Bible, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs. We read of his account in you know, Samuel and Kings and we realize he was very successful in business, international diplomacy, and technological innovation. And yet, before Psalm 127 will give us this answer to our question, how do we enter in to God's rest for us? Solomon requires us to wrestle with some questions for ourselves. And so let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask his help as he searches our hearts through these questions before offering us an answer to how we enter into his rest. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this portion of your word, for preserving it and for delivering it to us this morning. Father, we confess that we are anxious people, that we are ambitious people, that often we go our own way in our anxiety and in our ambition. We thank you for sending the good shepherd to bring us back to restore us to you and a right relationship with you through his sacrifice. And we pray that by your spirit, you would be illuminating our hearts to understand how we might enter into the rest that you have won for us through your son, our savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray, amen. So the first question that Solomon, Psalm 127, wants you to wrestle with in your own life is this. Why are you working 
so hard. I want you to take a minute and I want you to consider your schedule and your responsibilities, your career commitments, your family commitments, your church commitments, your neighborhood commitments. Parents, I want you to think about your children's schedules. I want you to think about their school commitments. I want you to think about their extracurricular activities. And then I want you to ask yourself honestly, why are you working so hard? Solomon asks this question in verses one and two. He says in verse two, you rise up early. Now we ask ourselves, why would someone set an alarm to rise up early before the sun is up? The answer is fairly obvious if we give it some thought. We do this because we believe that there are not enough hours in the day to accomplish what we have to get done. This sense of, of urgency drives us to wake up before the sun rises. Now, I, I remember as a kid, uh, many Saturday mornings, because my dad was passionate about doing his own yard work, I remember many Saturday mornings, my dad coming in before the sun rose and saying to me, waking me up, hey, you're burning daylight. Now, there is a place and a time to instill a, a proper God-honoring work ethic in our lives and in the lives of our children. Psalm 127 is not talking about a proper work ethic. What Psalm 127 is drawing attention to is workaholics, those who are working tirelessly and endlessly without any sense of rest. Now, why would we work so hard? Psalm 127 tells us it's because we want to build. Do you see that in verse one? It says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. In Proverbs 16, verse 27, Solomon says it this way. The appetite of laborers works for them. Their hunger drives them on. You and I both know that when selfish ambition takes root in our hearts, it will drive us. It will drive us so far that we will be willing to work ourselves to the bone. In our generation, I think perhaps the, the poster child for this kind of ambition, this drive to build, is the late Steve Jobs. You know him as the, the founder of Apple Incorporated. Now, Steve Jobs died in 2011 as a young man. And he gave a commencement speech prior to his death at Stanford University. And in this speech, which is celebrated by many people, this is what he said. Nobody wants to die. Even people who want to go to heaven don't want to die to get there. And yet death is the destination we all share. No one has escaped it. And that is as it should be. Because death is very likely the single best invention of life. It is life's change agent. It clears out the old to make way for the new. Right now, the new is you. But someday, not too long from now, you will gradually become the old and be cleared away. I'm sorry to be so dramatic, but it's quite true. And so have the courage to follow your heart and follow your intuition. They somehow already know what you truly want to become. And so everything else is secondary. And then he says these iconic words, stay hungry, stay foolish. This commencement speech on YouTube has over 12 million views and thousands upon thousands of likes. And yet Psalm 127, Solomon would say to this, our ambition, 
our hunger to build, has it considered God's sovereignty? He says in verse one, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. The one who gives us his rest is the creator of all things. There's nothing outside of the scope of God's sovereignty. As the Westminster Shorter Catechism says, God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing of all his creatures and all their actions. Or to say it the way that Psalm 127 says, God is the builder. And unless God builds it, it will not matter. So what are you building? Are you building a family? Are you building a business, a neighborhood, a reputation, a career, a relationship? In all your building, in all your planning, have you considered God? Because if not, Solomon says, that work, that drive, that ambition is in vain. These words, in vain, I find very interesting. You'll notice in verses one and two, it's repeated three times. Those who build it labor in vain. The watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest. In the Hebrew, this word literally means emptiness. I want you to think about it like a balloon, right? Our, our labor without the Lord may be very big and very impressive to some, but in a moment, once it is pricked by the Lord's judgment, it will be exposed. Will there be something there or will it be exposed as nothing? Will all our work be deemed, this is a hard word to hear, worthless? There's no amount of ambition or drive that will change this spiritual fact unless the Lord builds the house. Those who labor, labor in vain which means the opposite, is also true. If the Lord wills to do something, it will happen. There are countless stories and examples of this throughout scripture. If God willed to save people, they were saved. If God willed to provide for people, they were provided for. When God willed that his gospel of his son, Jesus Christ, would go throughout the whole world, we see this in scripture, we've seen this throughout church history, nothing will stop it. Why are you working so much? Have you considered the Lord? Have you considered his sovereignty? Or are you resting and trusting in your own sense of sovereignty? Are you building with him or without him? Hold on to that. Solomon has a second question. Why are you worrying so much? There's lots of things that we might worry about. Our career, family, our health, finances, lots of things. If you look back at verse 2, notice that Solomon says, it is in vain that you rise up early and that you go late to rest. This, this idea of staying awake, it's actually tied to uh, a, a person in verse one, to the watchman. 
A watchman is someone who's responsible for staying awake and responsible for guarding the city against attack. So their job, right, is to look out, and if they see danger, to respond to that danger, to be the first responder to that danger, to tell the city of this oncoming danger, and to do something about it. They worry so the city doesn't have to. If your watchman falls asleep, your city's exposed. Your city's in danger. And this helps us, I think, get at what Solomon is wanting us to understand. It is right to worry when we are the ones responsible for protecting our lives and protecting others. But notice verse 1. Unless the Lord watches the city, those who watch it stay awake in vain. The watchmen are responsible in some sense, to stand guard. But ultimately, what we see in this passage is that it is the Lord who is watching. It is the Lord who is guarding and protecting his people. And this doesn't mean that we simply just walk away, right? There's a clear connection in this passage between the working of God and the builders and the working of God and the the watchmen. But what is important for us to understand is that the responsibility for worry as it were, has gone up the ladder, so to speak. Why do we worry so much? Why do you worry so much? It's because while we might acknowledge with our lips or in our heads that God is sovereign, that God really is in control of our lives, in our hearts, we're not actually sure that he cares for us, that he worries on our behalf. Isn't this exactly what the disciples said to Jesus in the boat? Remember, Jesus is in the boat dead asleep. He is trusting in the sovereignty of his heavenly father in the midst of a storm, and he is having a great night's rest, and the disciples are up on the ship freaking out. And they wake Jesus up, and they say, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Then it says in Mark chapter 4, Jesus awoke and rebuked the wind and the sea, saying, Peace, be still. The wind ceased and there was a great calm. And then he turned to his disciples and said, Why were you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Does God care for you, Christian? We don't have to guess at the answer to that question. We know from this passage that God cares for us. In verse 2, it says that God gives sleep to who? His beloved. This language is remarkable. It's the idea of a father and a son. Some scholars see this as kind of a play on words in this psalm. Because the name Solomon, if you look at 2 Samuel 12, is actually not the name that God gave Solomon personally. The name that God gave Solomon at his birth was Jedidiah, and it means the one whom the Lord loves. And so scholars have argued, since Solomon is the author of this psalm, then he must be talking about himself. And yet this psalm is not tucked away into Solomon's private collection of psalms. It's given to all of God's people. How can it be that each of us and collectively could say we are God's 
beloved, that we are his sons and daughters. It's when we consider what God says about Jesus and of our unity with Christ, our union with him by the Holy Spirit through faith that we begin to understand our relationship to God. In, in Matthew chapter three, at Jesus' baptism, what does God say for everybody to hear? This is my beloved son in whom I delight. Through faith in Christ, we are united to him, not just so that our sins might be forgiven, though that is true. It is so that our relationship with God would be utterly transformed. No longer strangers, aliens, or enemies, sons and daughters. And because through Christ we are sons of God, because we are the beloved in Christ, God is worrying on our behalf. It's only when we forget this that we begin to fret. It's when we forget this that we stay up late, try to take responsibility for protecting our lives. But this is what the Apostle Peter says, telling us about our worry. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, channeling all or casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. 1 Peter chapter 5. Prayer is the channel by which we process stress. Maybe to think about it a different way, because we will all experience this either today or next week. Stress is what you feel in your body when God is calling you to pray to him. In the same way that when you feel hungry in your stomach, you know you got to go to the kitchen and get a snack. When you feel stress in your life, God is calling you, drawing you to prayer. It is in prayer that we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God and we acknowledge his sovereignty over our plans and over our ambitions, over our schedules. It's in prayer that we cast all of our anxiety on God. It is only when we do this that we will experience God's personal care for us. Why are you worrying so much? Have you considered God's love for you? So we've wrestled through the, the two questions. Now Solomon thinks we are prepared to hear clearly how we can enter into the rest that God has for us. And he says it in verses three through five. We enter into God's rest for us by receiving the gift of his son. I'm gonna read verses three through five again. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Now, I'm sure after I just read those verses, you might feel a little confused, right? Because isn't this passage about having a lot of babies? I mean, this is a Father's Day sermon, isn't it? Now, I would agree, this passage is celebrating and speaking very positively about the blessings of a large family. 
However, it is crucial for us to understand that this passage is not commanding us to have large families. Nor is this passage speaking about the benefits of large families simply for their own sake. The focus is on the Lord and his generosity and his goodness. We read here, I'm sorry, in the same way that the Lord in in verses 1 and 2 are presented as the builder and the watchman, verses 3 through 5 present God as the one building the family as the one guarding the family, and he does it by giving sons. Now, this part of the psalm is filled with a ton of Old Testament allusions. And the most important one is in verse 3. Look with me at verse 3. It says, Behold, consider, really think about this, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Those two words, heritage and reward, are meant first and foremost to remind you of Genesis chapter 15. It is in this chapter that God makes a covenant with Abraham and gives perhaps one of the most important sentences in the whole Bible. In Genesis 15, it says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. And Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to Abram. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward the heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And then Abraham believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. This passage will get picked up by the Apostle Paul in the New Testament to speak of our salvation by God's grace alone through faith alone alone. Our children, whether they are in, our, in the womb or they're in our living rooms or they're in our churches, they are a gift from the Lord. God has intentionally designed the family to be one man, one woman, married for life, giving a home for children. He calls us to honor it, And we honor it by acknowledging that just as a marriage is designed to reflect the relationship between Christ and the church, we read about this in Ephesians chapter 5, so too the gift of our children are given to us from the Lord in our church community and in our personal families, not simply to build up our earthly inheritance, but to reflect God's enduring covenant promises to us to be an evidence, a reminder, a picture of God's covenant promises of everlasting life, of unfading inheritance. We do not receive our children by our efforts, God says in verse 3. We receive them by the sovereign, gracious generosity of God. And they are meant to be a reminder to us of God's greatest gift, his only begotten 
Son, Jesus, for whom none of us worked for, God gave. Peter speaks about this again in 1 Peter when he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You will enter, we will enter, into God's rest on Sundays and throughout the week by regularly receiving anew the gift of his Son, by trusting in him with our lives and not in our activity and not in our ambitions. The truth is, the reason that we are often so exhausted, stressed out, and overscheduled is because we are seeking an inheritance here on earth. We build businesses, we build families, we build careers and neighborhoods. None of these things are bad. In fact, all of those things that I just listed are good. God gives those things to his people for our time here on earth. However, what is most telling is how we approach those things. Because often the way that we approach our businesses, our families, our finances, our health, our careers, and our children, and our neighborhoods, shows that we're very much interested in an inheritance that is perishable. We're very much interested in eating the bread of anxious toil. What a phrase. What's the result of that? Vanity. What's the result of vanity? Nothing. Worthlessness. Instead, God calls his people out of the exhausted kingdom of this world and into the kingdom of his son, which is marked by rest. So how do we enter into the rest that God has for us? We we trust in his sovereignty. We trust that his will alone in our lives will be what endures. And so we humble ourselves and all of our plans under his mighty hand. And we trust in his love. We trust that in Christ, he truly does care for us and he truly does worry for us. So we can gladly unburden ourselves we can go to bed and rest in him because we've casted all our anxieties upon him. Most importantly, we enter into this rest each and every day, not by continuing to go and eat the bread of anxious toil, but by turning to Jesus, to the son whom God has provided, the son who said in John chapter six, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Church, trust in Jesus. Know that it is in him alone that your eternal inheritance rests safe and secure. Go to work tomorrow. For some of you, it's a holiday. Go to work on Tuesday. 
and look to the Lord to sustain you and rest in him, knowing that he is the one that is building you up. He is the one that is guarding you. Rest easy. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, what a joy it is to call you that through Jesus Christ. We thank you for providing us manna from heaven, as it were. A word today that could feed our souls. A word that reminds us of the bread of life, you, Lord Jesus. Help us to submit to your sovereignty, to trust you. Help us to cast all of our anxieties upon you so that we may experience the peace and the rest that you have for us. You have already given us your son. How much more will you give us all things? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.